following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truths of scripture and we thank you that we have this time to navigate the depths of that holy truth for purposes of life-changing application so i pray i pray that in this very service today that we be changed i pray in this very service today that we become more like christ who died on a cross and rose on the third day that we may know you and we may approach you in this very prayer for it's in his name that we pray amen Good morning, church. Today we're back in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let me make a quick note. There's children all around you in this service today. The kingdom of God is full of children, and so I'm delighted for that. I just want to say really quickly that young folks are the future of this church. They're the future of this church And they should be a priority to you. They should be a priority to this church, a high, high priority. Hear me loud and clear when I say this. God's favor rests upon you by the presence of children in this church. God's favor rests upon you. So we're thankful for that. So welcome them around you this morning. We're thankful for that. And we're thankful that they're here with us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This morning I'm going to preach on the topic of prayer. We're going to dive into the topic of prayer this morning. Most of you have been around church your whole life. A lot of you have. Some of you may not. You've been like me. You've been around church. You've heard all sorts of things about prayer. Some of it good. Some of it bad. Some of it kind of cheesy. At times, prayer can become dry. Honestly, there's questions that I ask about prayer. Some of the things I've read and you hear about prayer, you think, what is even going on when we pray? When we pray to God, what is even occurring? Not only what do we do in prayer, but what is even happening in prayer? Those are big questions for us this morning. Prayer can become dry. It become it can become robotic. It it can take on all these forms. So I'm hoping what we'll walk through this morning will be helpful to you to understanding the big picture of prayer and one of the aspects that Paul calls us to in prayer because he does it right here in this text. He does it right here in the text we examine this morning. If I gave you a date, a lot of you in here, if I gave you the date November 22nd, 1968, if I said the date November 22nd, 1968, some of you will instinctively remember that date. If I give you the date November 22nd, 1968, some of you know that date from experience. Some of you, a lot of you in this room would can transport back to that day and know exactly where you were, exactly what you were doing on November 22nd, 1968. November 22nd, 1968 was the day that our president's life was taken in Dallas, Texas. November 22nd. You give me... 63. I'm sorry. I'm all over the place on that. (laughs) It's been a long week. Anyway, so 1963, that's exactly what's in my notes. Everybody's looking at me like, what is he talking about? November 1963. Thanks for that. So that's the date that our president's life was taking. At the time of that tragedy in this country, I'm going to get back on point here. At the time of that tragedy in our country, the sitting secretary of the Navy was a gentleman by the name of Paul Fay. His name was Red. His nickname was Red. 
Some of you know well what the Secretary of the Navy does. His name was Paul Fay. Fay was a longtime friend of President uh, John F. Kennedy. He, he was a longtime friend of him. He was instrumental in his campaigns for Congress, the Senate, and the presidency. And he was Secretary of the Navy at the time of that tragedy. A couple days after the tragedy, he would resign that position. He would resign that position, and then several years later, a few years later, he penned a book, he penned a memoir of sorts about the 21-year friendship with John Kennedy. One of the stories he tells in the book, it was fascinating to me, he tells a story about being in the White House right around the time of the inauguration. That would have been in 1961. Got my dates right on that. He was in the White House with the President Kennedy. Kennedy was, oddly enough, he was decorating the Oval Office himself. They're in another section of the White House. President Kennedy hands him these two pictures of Native Americans, these two portraits of Native Americans, and tells him to take them up to the Oval Office and put them in the Oval Office. And Faye tells this story that he proceeds to go up to the Oval Office. He gets around security, and he's standing in the Oval Office. He delivers the cargo. He's standing in the Oval Office alone. And he says it was a really dense moment. He says he realizes that he's standing in the middle of probably the most important office in the world. He's standing alone in the middle of probably the most important room in the entire modern civilization. And that's important because what's happening in that, he notes very clearly, he notes, he says it was an unreal feeling to be in the office of the President of the United States. It wasn't normal. He says for a brief moment in his life, that very brief moment, he had felt like that the engineer had left the control panel and that he could throw some imaginary switch and change the course of our country and change the course of the world for all time. He said he felt that standing in the office by himself. It's not normal to be in there alone. So, in other words, Faye standing in the Oval Office and he, he, he alone, he experiences this gravity of being in proximity to real power. To real power. That's what's occurring there. He knew that he was in proximity of power that could make a historical difference. For a brief moment, he experienced, meaning he felt with his emotions, with his intellect, and with his heart, he felt and understood what another president once pointed out, and that is this, that proximity to power is power. That's what Faye's getting at. He's getting at that proximity to the Oval Office was powerful. Proximity to power is power. So in many ways, this is precisely the way we ought to regularly experience our approach to the heavenly throne through prayer. We ought, it ought to be the same experience when we pray. So here's the statement. It's through prayer that we are in the closest proximity to power. More specifically, it is by prayer through Jesus Christ that we have free, unfettered access to the single greatest source of power ever known to mankind, God Almighty. Proximity to power is power. That's what we're getting at. The key statement, by prayer through Jesus Christ, we have free, unfettered access to the single greatest source of power known to man, God Almighty. Proximity to power is power. So to the text, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. We're going to read this together, the first part of this. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful life and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
verse 3, he says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Paul is dealing with the nature of prayer in these verses. That's what he launches off into. And so the question comes up is how do we think about the nature of prayer? How do we rightly understand prayer? There's a lot of nuances to prayer that we could go into this morning, but I'm just going to give you two broad categories, and then we're going to descend into one of these categories. There's really two critical pieces to understanding prayer. The first is this, is there's a communion, what the Puritans called a communion, an inward personal aspect of prayer. There's an inward personal aspect, your personal, your individual before God. That's one side of it. The other thing is there's a kingdom or outward focus aspect to prayer. Sort of two very broad natures to prayer there. The first, this personal communion with God, it's the inward Christian experience. It's your needs, your personal needs, your wants, your desires. It's through prayer. The Puritans said it's through prayer that we draw near to God. That's a term they use. We enter into communion with Him. It's through this aspect of prayer that the love for God is kindled. We taste and see His goodness. We apply the comfort of His promises. It's personal. This is where you release your anxieties before God. You lay your personal issues before Him. This is the personal inward aspect of prayer. That's one, one specific nature of prayer. The time, my time today doesn't give me a chance to really delve in this, but I want to say a couple things really quick about the inward nature of prayer. Just a couple things really quick. Whatever you're dealing with in your life, whatever mess, whatever brokenness, whatever anxiety, long-suffering, health issues, for a change, do this. We're talking about inward personal prayer. For a change, do this. Open to the book of Isaiah. Read the book of Isaiah and pray something to God. Say something like, Listen, I thank you, God, that you unfold your righteousness through the prophecy of Isaiah. Thank you, God, that you redeem people and that you give us a foresight of Jesus that comes, the great Redeemer, the great Healer that comes. Maybe open your Bible and go to Romans 3 and read Romans 3 about justification and righteousness and say things to to God like, God, thank you for your righteousness. Not only thank you for your righteousness, but thank you that you communicate to us that there is something called righteousness. Do you understand that God's grace upon your life is the mere fact that he shows you what true righteousness is? That's a grace. He didn't have to do that. Or maybe open the book and go to Revelation chapter 21, the beautiful chapter in Revelation, and read that beautiful chapter in there and know that there is a place in your life, there will come a time in your life where Jesus says that you will drink, you will drink from the spring of water of the spring of the water of life without payment. And that the former things, the things you're dealing with today, they'll go away. They'll be no longer. The inward aspect of prayer. That's the first thing. I'm just trying to give you practical things that will help you. Here's another thing. Ladies, plug your ears for a second. (laughs) I'm about to have a conversation with men right here. Men, real talk. Look at me, seriously. Part of being a leader in your home is, is you need to be on your face before God every day for your family and for your marriage and for yourself. Hear me. Every day almost in my life, and I'm not saying this to sound spiritually gifted or anything like that, but almost every day I am on my face before God at 5 a.m. in my house alone. I'm on my face to him. And we have a conversation. Listen to me, men. We have a conversation. And I say things like, God, I have the ability within me to blow my marriage. I do. I say things like, God, I have the ability to be a lousy father. I do. 
hold me fast. I plead with him. I look at him and say, I have the ability to blow this. Hold me fast. I've talked to two people this morning that have marriages that are 60 years and beyond. They're in this congregation right now, two couples. There's more than that, but there's two I already talked to today. Listen to me. Those, that comes from being on your knees. It's not easy. My wife told me I couldn't say this particular word, but, but be a man. Be a man. Be a leader in your home personal inward aspect of prayer. I love you. Women, welcome back. That's all I need to say on that. So anyway, that's the personal nature of prayer. That's the inward nature of prayer. There's a second aspect that Paul deals with here is this outward aspect, this kingdom-oriented aspect of prayer. So it's outward. There's an aspect of prayer that Paul calls us to in these verses that's missionally oriented. It's outward focused. So let's look at what he does. Verse 1 here. We're going to walk right through this. The first part of this that Paul calls us to is he calls us to prayer as an act of service to society. That's the first thing he does here. He calls us to prayer as an act of service to the society. He says, I urge you in supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. This is the key phrase made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. This is what he's talking about here. Supplications are prayers for other people. Intercession is petitions to a higher rank. Thanksgiving is reflection on God's faithfulness, his responsiveness to us. But do you see how he situates this passage in terms of service for all people? He situates, it, he situates this in terms of service, this outward. It's a prayer for others, a prayer for people in authority, a prayer for kingdom purposes. Do you see that in the text? One of the things that Paul is getting at here is that the church, this outward prayer is a part of the church's service to society. How do I know that? How do I know that that's what Paul's getting at in these verses? Because he gives us the object of the prayer. You see it right there. We've already walked through this. It's for those outside the church. A lot of these people are outside the faith that Paul's talking about. Right in here. He's saying kings and people in positions. So let me just say something here. I want to be clear about this as well. It is beyond objection that you, this church, and you as a Christian ought to be praying for the President of the United States. Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you ought to be praying for him. At the very least, he is the commander-in-chief of the Allied forces. He is of the, of the, of the strongest military presence ever known to mankind. We should be praying for him. This church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, is a part of a cooperation of some 47,000 churches. Amongst that, there are leaders. There are leaders of our seminaries. We have six seminaries in the Southern Baptist Convention, and they're all good. And you should be praying for the leaders of those seminaries. You should be praying for men like Adam Greenway, who just assumed the position of the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a friend of mine. You should be praying for him. You should be praying for the elected officials in this city. You should be praying for elected officials in this in this state. You know this. This is this is what Paul is calling us to here. You should be praying for the people that lead the Southern Baptist Convention entities. There's something called the International Mission Board. And it is the greatest mission force ever known to mankind. There are people pressing into darkness all over this world. And the gentleman that leads that, his name is Paul Chitwood. And he experiences a pressure of spiritual warfare that I probably never will. We should be praying for him. We should be praying for our leaders. 
prayer is an act of service to our society. It's by prayer through Jesus Christ that we have free, unfettered access to the single greatest source of power known to mankind, God Almighty. Proximity to power is power. Proximity to power is power. How do we know that Paul is calling us to prayer as a means of service to society? The second part of this is that he tells us that we are to pray for a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. So if you hear the verses there, he gives us the reason for it. He says, we pray for these people that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life that's godly and dignified in every way. These elements, peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified, these are benefits to the larger society. You understand that? These are benefits to the larger society, even beyond the church. Peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. These are the means in which Christians make God present in society. Your godliness is a way that you make God present in society. It's how you make him real. In other words, a peaceful and quiet society, religious liberty, I don't have time to get into all of that, allows for godliness That allows for godliness. It allows for you to make God known. It allows you to live a life of dignity, which is simply a respectability through engagement of society. This is what Paul's getting at here. We pray for our leaders that we might have a peaceful, quiet, and godly life. So pump the brakes. Let's pump the brakes for a minute here. Prayer is an act of service to society. Our prayers are prayers. Not your personal influence or your social clout. Most of us will never, listen to me, most of us will never have that type of influence, my friends. But all, a lot of times all we have is prayer. Don't lose sight of that. It is by prayer through Jesus Christ that we have unfettered and free access to the single greatest source of power known to mankind, God Almighty. Proximity. To power is power. Proximity to power is power. The second thing, Paul is calling us to service of society by praying for these people, but he also is calling the larger picture that's going on here is he's calling us to prayer as a support in the mission to take the gospel to the world. That's the second part of the outward prayer that he gives us. How do we know that Paul is calling us as a me- calling us to pray as a means of supporting our mission to take the gospel to the world? He in- he connects this entire passage. He just runs it right into the gospel. It's beautiful. Look at verse three and four here. He says that he- that we pray for these people so that we have a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. Then look at verse three and four. He-, he lays out the gospel here. He says this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved, that salvation, and come to the knowledge of truth. He runs all of this right into the gospel. He gives us prayer as an aspect of society, but, 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 that's not the end of prayer. There's one more step. There's one more purpose in that. Let me be clear on this. There's a greater purpose. The greater purpose of the church is gospel proclamations amongst people. Amongst the people, Paul is a missionary before he is a theologian. If he walked in those doors right there, he would rejoice that we take church membership well. He would rejoice that we are strong about doctrine. But he would ask the question, what are we doing to reach the community and the city and the nations with the gospel? 
That's what he's getting at with prayer right here. You read this passage and you think, why in the world does he insert the gospel into all of this? He's talking about prayer. And then he launches into this small discourse about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he do that? When you read this passage, when I was reading it and preparing for this, I'm thinking, why does he do this? The answer is that we desire, this is important, we desire peaceful lives of godliness and dignity, not because it is simply the best ideal for our own purpose and comfort. We desire these lives so that the kingdom of God advances and the gospel is made known. You clear? You tracking with me on that? Prayer leads to gospel mobilization. Paul is thinking about the Gentile mission here. For those of you that know the Bible well, he's thinking about the Gentile mission. He has it in mind. He has the advancement of the gospel in mind when he writes this. He has salvation without distinction in mind when he writes this. The Jew, the Gentile, white, African American, German, Scottish, whatever. Salvation without distinction means that we know that Christ's death is effective. We know that it's effective, but God will redeem his people. But we have got to pray and labor for that. We have to pray and labor for that. Frederick, Frederick Douglass, who was a, he was a former slave, he was a 19th century abolitionist, he was a fine man and a brilliant writer. He said this, he said, he said I prayed for freedom from slavery for 20 years. I prayed for it for 20 years, but I did not receive an answer until I prayed with my legs. Until I prayed with my legs. God will redeem his people, but we have to pray and labor towards that end. Prayer is a support for the mission to take the gospel to the world. It is. It's been some time back now, a few weeks back now, but I was with a gentleman that I esteem and I respect a lot. Um, he's, he's a higher profile person in the evangelical church. If I mentioned his name, you would know him. But it was, he told me some three years ago that he had a daughter that was outside of the faith. He told me three years ago that he had a daughter that, that, didn't, that wasn't in the faith. She didn't love the gospel. She knows the gospel. She knows it better than most people in this room. She could probably, frankly, teach this text better than I could to be dead honest with you about it. But she's not in the face. He's indifferent towards it. I've never met her. I have no idea what she looks like. If I ran into her stone cold in the store this afternoon. But her, but her dad was telling me a few weeks ago, we were together, he was telling me that she was having trouble sleeping because she was concerned about where she would spend eternity. So the war is not over. But by that statement alone, I know that God's working. And so I'm telling you this just to give you encouragement. I, I have prayed for her continuously for three years. I've never met her. I wouldn't know her if she walked in this room right here. But I've prayed for her continuously for three years. I got emotional when he told me this. I was sitting in the middle of a meeting. I couldn't even hardly make it through the meeting. I couldn't even hardly make it through the meeting. The battle isn't over. I can't get to her in person. I'm powerless in a temporal sense, in a sense of this world. But I have access to the greatest source of power known to mankind, God Almighty. Are your prayers outwardly focused? Are they outwardly focused? It's simple. It's by prayer through Jesus Christ that we have free, unfettered access to the single greatest source of power known to mankind, God Almighty. Proximity 
to power is power. Then look at verse 5 and 6 here. He closes it up. We'll touch on this and then we'll shut it down. He says, for there is one God. He launches into the gospel and then he breaks the gospel down even further for us. He says, there's one God. There's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. If by prayer we have free, unfettered access to the greatest single source of power known to mankind, God Almighty, if proximity to power is power, this is a critical question. What it gives us proximity to God? What gives us access to the greatest source of power, God Almighty? It is through your prayer, yes, but there's something more fundamental that explains this access, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives you the access to God the Father. Paul situates Jesus as a central point or a central feature to to the entire world history. His position as the great mediator is an incredibly important theological truth for us. Lock in with me here as I close this down. Most every single religion known to mankind has an element of mediation. It does. They situate somebody or something. They set forth something as a mediator between mankind and whatever God they articulate. Every single religion does this. Even biblical figures. Moses, for a small window of time, was a sort of mediator to God. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that. He bore this sense of being a mediator between God or man. But listen to me when I say this. Only Jesus Christ achieves actual mediation. He's the only one that actually achieves it. How? Christ Jesus is not some random third party that helps Christians approach God. He is God himself. He's the same essence. He's the exact imprint of God's very being. Do you understand that Jesus does not stand between two parties, God and man? He does not stand between them. He is the two parties. You with me? Anybody with me on that? This is, this is what is so beautiful about the gospel. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he's the only one that could satisfy the righteous wrath of God. Herman Bovink, who's a masterful theologian, he says that Jesus is not God because he is a mediator. He is mediator because he is God. That's so good. Aaron, somebody say something. That's so good. Yes, thank you. He is not God because he is a mediator. He is a mediator because he is God. Amen. Yes. In other words, Christ's deity is the very reason he can function as a mediator. This is why Jesus has caused so many problems throughout history. He came to the earth. He's a teacher. He's a good moral man. Everything's cool until he starts claiming to be equal with God. Right? Everything's cool till he starts being equal with God, saying he's equal to God. Then people start saying, um, no, I'm not okay with this anymore. Everything's cool. He's a nice moral man. He's a great teacher. But we start getting in this stuff about atonement, this stuff about death and all this business. I'm out. Let me be clear. I love the ministry of Jesus Christ. I love it. I love that the rich directive that he gives about the life of the Christian life and Christian ethics. I love Jesus' mission and his teaching. I think at times we've overemphasized some elements of the cross at the loss of his work on virtue or love, his teaching on that. I want to be clear on that. But his death and bodily resurrections are the central features of the gospel. Point blank. The gospel is not the gospel without his death and resurrection for the victory over sin and the satisfaction of the righteous wrath of God. That is the gospel. 
Don't ever lose it. Not a breath up here. Jesus functions as the mediator in two senses. He functions as the mediator in two senses. I'm going to give you both of these senses, and these are beautiful truths. Jesus is the mediator through sacrifice. Track with me here. These are important truths to the Christian faith. He's mediator through sacrifice. Paul's dealing with this in 4 and 5, in 5 and 6 here. He's dealing with this stuff straightforward. Jesus absorbed in his own person the righteous wrath of God in order that we might live free. That's the central feature of the gospel. It's the most precious truth, in my opinion, in the entire Christian faith. Don't ever water it down. Hold on to the hard edges of the gospel. Don't sidestep it. Fully embrace them and stay clear on them. Stay clear on this stuff. A lot of misinformation out there today. Stay clear on this stuff. Don't go to the application of Jesus' work, the freedom, the joy, the Holy Spirit. I love all that stuff. Don't go all the way to that stuff without reflecting upon the objective accomplishment of his life, the atonement and the resurrection. Tracking with me here? Jesus is the mediator through sacrifice. The second part of Jesus' work, there's a lot to his work, but this is the second part that Paul's dealing with here in general, is Jesus functions as a real-time intercessor. He functions as a real-time mediator. Right now, at this very moment, he is mediating. He's mediating for the Christian. Part of God's grace to us as believers is that Jesus Christ gains favor. This is important. He gains favor for our prayers. This is what I mean. This is the truth. We are never pure enough. We're never zealous enough. We're never diligent enough. We're never holy enough. We're never good enough to approach the eternal throne of heaven on our own. That's the reality. But Christ is. Christ purchases favor for our prayers. It is in and through Jesus Christ that we pray. You hear this all the time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is why. This is a grace to the believer. This is a grace to the child of God. It is in and through Christ that we pray. And it doesn't go away for you if you're a Christian. You're solid on that. That's why it's such a beautiful thing to be a child of God. You can't be righteous enough, but Christ is. You cannot be blameless enough, but Christ is. You cannot have it together enough, but Christ does. He does. Do you understand the importance of the gospel? You understand the importance of the gospel? The gospel is the love of God upon your life. It's his gracious favor upon you. The gospel gives you confidence before God. It gives you graciousness in his eyes. He gives you boldness to approach the throne of heaven. It gives you assurance that your prayers are heard and God holds you in the palm of his hand as a child of his. He loves you beyond all measure and your petitions to him are heard. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need the gospel. The gospel isn't just about getting into heaven. It's about your prayers as well. It's about your prayers as well. So here's the question. Do you have a prayer life that functions as a service to society and as a support to take the mission of the gospel to the world? Does your prayer life look like this? 
Does your prayer life look like this? The power of God makes you bold. It gives you assurance. It gives you confidence and enables you to hold fast in the midst of difficult situation. It motivates and inspires. Proximity to the power of God Almighty through Jesus in prayer unlocks the riches of heaven. It inflames your love for the gospel and its advancement. It binds the hearts to the promises of Scripture. It laces our souls with the immeasurable joy at the sight of salvation. It helps extinguish the throes of hardship and suffering by causing us to extend ourselves beyond our to extend beyond ourselves in service to others. My dear friends, live a life beyond yourself. Live a life of petition and supplication and intercession for this society. Live a life of petition and supplication and intercession for the gospel advancement in this community. It's by prayer through Jesus Christ, that we have free, unfettered access to the single greatest source of power known to mankind, God Almighty. Proximity to power is power. Proximity to power is power. The power we need for the gospel to reach this community, the gospel to reach this city, and the gospel to reach the nations. May the God of all mercy and kindness hear our pleas through Jesus Christ and grant us a desire to serve our society through prayers for purposes of gospel advancement. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Eternal Father, I'm thankful to you that we have a great mediator that stands in your very presence at this moment on behalf of your children. I'm thankful that we live in a society that have, has been given precious freedoms through the blood of men, through the direction of generals and through the battles of the world, Father, that we've claimed freedom in this country and we stand and fight for it. And I'm thankful to you for that because it allows me to stand in this pulpit on this very day and proclaim without any fear the gospel of Jesus Christ in its purest and richest form. And so I'm thankful to you for that. I pray for the leaders of this country. I pray for the leaders in this very room, the people that lead on the battlefield, the people that lead on our bases, the people that lead in all sorts of ways in schools and in uh, private sector and in the government. I pray for their leadership, Father. I pray that they know the gospel, and I pray that you give us the strength. You give us the strength and the character and the fire, dear Lord, in the days ahead to not only live, live a life of godliness but to live it for your purposes and to live it for your mission. I'm thankful to you for this day. I'm thankful to you for this body. In Jesus' name, amen.